Today, sales teams are more distributed, moving faster than ever before. But most enablement and training is slow to build, hard to change, and often doesn't drive results. So the good folks over at Lessonly built a powerfully simple enablement solution to help sales teams like yours ramp 50% faster, continuously improve, and close up to 75% more deals. Lessonly empowers leaders to quickly create, update, and share branded bite-sized lessons that reps will actually take on any device. Make enablement and feedback personalized to each rep. Quickly identify skills gaps, provide specific coaching, recognize great performance, and get back to revenue-driving activities faster. Check out Lessonly.com, L-E-S-S-O-N-L-Y.com. If you're in sales, check this one out. This episode is brought to you by Spiff. Want real-time transparency and visibility into your commission plans? No more payout questions, miscalculations, or hours spent on commission reports or disputes. Automate commissions with Spiff and stay motivated, not distracted. Go to spiff.com forward slash Colin to get started today. That's spiff.com forward slash Colin. And now back to the episode. Hello and welcome back to the Colin Cadmus podcast. This is episode number six, and I'm extremely excited for today's guest, Brendan Cassidy. Brendan graduated from St. Mary's College of California, started his career in recruiting, then transitioned into sales where he eventually landed himself at LinkedIn in 2005 as employee number 15 and LinkedIn's first ever head of sales. Brendan's next move was one that I would say changed his life forever. He went to work for Jason Lemkin as the VP of sales at Ecosign, which was eventually acquired by Adobe for an estimated $400 million. After Ecosign, Brendan went on to be the VP of sales at TalkDesk, now valued at over $3 billion, then started his own consulting firm, Cassidy Ventures, where he helped found Gong, and most recently co-founded CoSell.io, where he works as the co-CEO. He's a frequent speaker at Saster and other large events, but today we've got him here to share his story firsthand. Brendan, I'm excited to have you in, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, uh, thanks for the invitation, Colm. Looking forward to it. Likewise, man. Uh, I've seen you speak at Saster a couple times. We've obviously interacted a few times on on LinkedIn, but uh, and I think we had a phone call probably like almost a year ago at this point when I first started at Aircall. Actually, more than a year, maybe two years yeah. now. But uh, this is the first chance to to really sit down and and get to know you and hear your story firsthand. So, kind of like to just start out with the simple like, how'd you get into sales? I, I know I believe you started in recruiting, right, and then yeah. and then moved into sales. So. What was that like? You started out in recruiting. How'd you land in that job? And then what made you decide to to make the switch uh, to go into sales? Not that they're entirely different. Yeah. So I, I yeah, I, I grew up I grew up in the Bay Area. So I grew up out here. So obviously I knew, you know, I knew what the tech sort of scene was like. This you're talking back twenty years ago, essentially, right? So um, that was pre dot com bubble bursting. Mm. which is a t- an era that actually not a lot of people that you meet in tech today were in tech yeah. at that point yet. Um, but it was, um, you know, it was a pretty like frothy time for tech. There were, you know, a lot of, a lot of startups, a lot of IPOs, um, a lot of, <laughs> I mean, a lot of IPOs for companies that were not making much money, if any. Um, and so, you know, it was like, tech was sort of, you know, if you wanted to be in the game in the Bay Area, tech was probably where it was going to be. And so a friend of mine worked for this company called Otech, which was a recruiting firm in San Francisco. Uh, actually, a guy named Matt Strand that I've known since I was two. <laughs> so uh, there are local there are local connections and networks in the Bay Area. <laughs> Obviously, you have a lot of people here who are not from here. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, I came in. 
it was a really young group. Everyone was like, you know, 20 to 20, 22 to 25 sort of, sort of, sort of range. And probably about six or seven months after starting is when the dot-com bubble collapsed. And, you know, so that was like my introduction to, it's kind of a career introduction. Certainly my introduction to tech was like, you know, literally going from like the highest of highs as far as like, you know, just how kind of easy it was to like, you know, (laughs) like a apocalyptic sort of, you know, fallout, which is really what, you know, when people talk about how difficult the pandemic this period has been, which has been difficult for a lot of people, right? If not uh, professionally, personally for a lot of people. And so, you know, but they asked me, you know, economically, like compare the sort of pandemic period and the dot-com bubble bursting. Well, the dot-com bubble bursting was, that was like, you know, that was the worst thing that's ever happened in the tech space in my lifetime. I'm <laughs> um, talking like 2008 around there. No, that's actually, that's before then I'm talking to uh, 2001, 2002, right, 2003, right. um, literally where there was, you know, obviously you and I were chatting a little bit about the sort of exodus from sort of San Francisco. Yeah. I would say the city more than the Bay area, but there've been a lot of people that have left. Nothing compared to 2002, 2003 timeframe. Literally almost every person I knew in San Francisco just packed up. And <laughs> but that actually it, makes a lot make sense, right? Because we were just talking about how, how you're, you're, you're being very pro, you know, stay in California, it's going to come back. But now that gives some context, like you've kind of seen the worst of this, you know, play yeah. its course before. Yeah, I, it was literally just like, and, you know, the, and that's when they talk about San Francisco, San Francisco. Silicon Valley was traditionally the sort of center of, of the tech scene, right? Which is not San Francisco. Right. Silicon Valley is, you know, for, you know, you know, generally broadly speaking, 30 to 60 minutes south of San Francisco, but the dot-com bubble was really the first time the city emerged as sort of like where a lot of these startups and companies were founding. And then it just all went away, <laughs> like literally just, you know, from like max capacity you know, trillions of, of investment dollars flowing into the San Francisco startup scene to just, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, commercial real estate vacancies, right, left, center. Yeah. And so, you know, it's and that's why, you know, it's a lot of the people that are saying it's the end of the Bay Area, the end of the Valley. They haven't been here <laughs> even long enough to have been right. through it like a single How long did it take to recover from it back then. It was a while. Uh, as far as the the tech space in general, I think yeah. I would say sort of LinkedIn, Facebook, right, which came, you know, which were 2004, 2005, as far as their emergence, right. that was really where, you know, you started to see um, sort of an upward swing in the market. And really, it was the learning from the dot-com bubble bursting was companies were much more pragmatic about their revenue models and their growth models. And sustainability, profitability, even in some cases, although not a lot of people, profitability is not 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 a super popular word these days in tech. Um, but yeah, the, the you know companies were going out literally in 2000. I think there was a company called Web Methods that went out of like 25 million in revenue, annual revenue. Right? Think about how crazy that is, right? And so now you see most companies really going out at like 150, 200 or more. 
in revenue, right? So just how companies are, are growing, um, go-to-market models, distribution models, all those things, those were really just sort of sort of neophyte concepts back then. So it's, it's changed a ton. But yeah, there was, it, there was a three, it was a three to four year reckoning wow. in which if you wanted to be in the tech space, like you had to think, you know, it was not a no brainer in any way. Right. Right. Um, Certainly not like, like it is today or has been in the last few yeah. years. So and, sa- and, and the dot-com bubble bursting is also what helped facilitate the cloud as a viable business model, right? Because the number of, you know, CIOs and, you know, sort of fortune 1000 executives that were buying enterprise on-premise customized software back in, you know, late nineties into 2000, that became, you know, just a, that was, that became such an overt risk to their livelihoods. I'm going to go buy the investment software. was for- so significant. What's that? Because the investment is so significant to do. Yeah, you were money? investing a lot of money that you yeah. couldn't, you know, there was no pulling back. Right, right. So you were investing in products and then all of a sudden, you know, four to five months later, these companies were bankrupt. Right. Right. And like, hey, like our yeah, supply chain is now, yeah, our supply chain is now run on this highly customized on-premise enterprise software deployment that for a company that's no longer in business. And so yeah, the cloud and, and became, they can't move fast with that stuff either, right? The on-prem, like the, the way that software gets updated today, like it could never, it could never happen at that speed with on-prem. Yeah, I mean, there's all, there's the benefits of, of SaaS versus enterprise or on-premise is there's many, many, certainly many benefits to it. But the the catalyst was that was hey, we need we want to be able to build and sell software to people without risking the life of the person buying it, right. To give them, give them a way to, you know, to test it or to, you know, to buy a, you know, subset of licenses or subscriptions before they go all in. Um, And that's, that's really how the cloud came to be, right. Like, you know, Salesforce is like, Hey, don't, you know, you don't need to go spend $5 million with Siebel or Oracle or whatever it is. Right. Just, you know, and that was their, you know, sort of bottom up strategy, if you want to call it that. Makes a ton of sense. So, so, I, so what was the original question? <laughs> it's, it's how you got into sales, right? So it sounds yeah. like, you know, you're going through this dot-com burst and, and then, you know, LinkedIn yeah. sort of becomes on the horizon for you. How did that, well, how did that happen? And I guess, did you so have recruit- any sense of like how big of a deal LinkedIn would be at the time? Sure. I was, no, nobody did. Um, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I had a sense that it was something that there was, the raw materials could be amazing, but like nobody was walking around being like, you know, LinkedIn is a no brainer, you know, like. No one thought it was the next like social media platform. It was like a resume job seeking. It was kind of new. It was kind of cool, but it wasn't. was what, what's your revenue, what's your revenue model? That was when people said, talked about LinkedIn. They're like, Oh, is that the company that spams me with invitations to connect or, or whatever it is? Right. And then like, okay, well, what's the revenue model, right? If you, if you talked about, you know, how many users or how many users were joining every day or whatever it is, it was questions around like that, that there's no real viable sort of business model around it. Right. Um, Which was similar to Facebook when they started. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, well, you just made me remember in that. that. You know, Facebook obviously was always ads. Facebook was always going to be driving sort of an advertising revenue model, 
LinkedIn did LinkedIn did not become LinkedIn on the backs of an advertising revenue. When I started, that was the assumption, right? right. We were going to grow through ads the way Facebook did. But advertising never, it's sort of the corporate solution side always outperformed the advertising side generally. It makes um, sense because the data and the access is so powerful that it's, yep. it's so valuable. I mean, when you look at what people pay to use LinkedIn, it's crazy, right? When, when you look at companies, yep. the, the amounts they're spending, but like, yeah, do it certainly without thinking twice. Yeah, certainly from a recruiting solution standpoint, they've, you know. And LinkedIn the sales has, navigator too. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I, honestly, I don't know that I would say LinkedIn has been a disruptor there in the same way they've been in recruiting. I agree. The, I agree. The recruiting landscape, um, you know, LinkedIn really decimated. I guess you're right. You have to have it for recruiting. Yeah, because when I was starting there, that was what we were like, you know, you know, hey, think we could sell something into recruiting. <laughs> that was kind of like the, that's why I was hired to figure that out. To figure that background. out. So they come to you. Well, well, walk me through that. So how did you meet them? Like, what was that first conversation? Who came to you and, and, yeah. and what was the ask? Yeah. So there's an intermediate step. So obviously I was recruiting, which was, you know, that's, that's, a, that's, that's its own podcast session. <laughs> Going I mean, that. I imagine that the recruiting was like, it's your first yeah. job, you're getting out of school, you're learning a, l- a bunch of stuff and like you're, you're yeah. getting your feet wet. I mean, the rec- my recruiting experience is really the foundation of my career and, ex- you know, like that established everything else that came after it uh, in, in every way. Uh, um, and still today, like there's things, tons of things I learned as a recruiter and in recruiting that I do every day, almost like, you know. So was it largely, I guess it was largely your recruiting experience that made sense for them to look at you for this role? So yeah, so really my first job after recruiting, right? So I had, through recruiting, I had built, you know, we'd, we'd built a great network of people, right? So I went to this company called Spoke Software, introduced by Aaron Ross, by the way. Oh, was it? I Aaron Ross that. introduced me to the VP of sales for this company called Spoke Software. So Spoke was funded at the same time as LinkedIn, literally, like, and so the, the, there was a sort of kind of manufactured rivalry between the founder of Spoke and Reed as like, which of these companies is going to make it now Spoke's right. Spoke's model. It was basically two different data sets. One was LinkedIn opt-in, you know, opt-in it's dynamic, you know, people own their own data. Right. And so it keeps the data super fresh. Spoke was trying to like aggregate data through email. Right. Okay. Um, and so they really weren't competitors, but they were sort of built up to be competitors. But again, it was essentially it was data, right? It was people data. So it was like the, the beginning of that sort of space in general, right? Which is now, you know, a real category, I'd say. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so, so they were viewed to be competitors. We did well, but we didn't have, we just didn't have, you know, we didn't have a product that was going to scale like LinkedIn. Didn't have the virality LinkedIn had. And so, you know, LinkedIn reached out to me and they're like, yeah, we want to, we want to, we think we want to launch something in recruiting. Obviously your background, given that you, you know, you were spoke, which was again, identified pretty closely with LinkedIn at that point. Not, a, not many people recollect this by the way today that the spoke and LinkedIn had sort of par- early parallel paths. And then, um, you know, she reached out to me. She cold called me actually, believe it or not. Who was it? I was actually wondering, was it Jeff who reached out to you or, or did they have someone else? 
Uh, well, Jeff was years later. Didn't come into LinkedIn. Oh, that's uh, right. That's yeah. right. For some and reason, so, I always think he's the founder, but that, uh, no, God, you're right. No, Reed's, Reed's the founder. Reed's the founder and the visionary and all that stuff. But uh, it was a woman named Tara Terwilliger. <laughs> um, and she had brought it. She came in to be the GM of LinkedIn Jobs. That's what it was sort of called Got at it. that point. And then I turned, so I met with them, got offered the job, turned it down, turned the job down. Really? Yeah. Because spoke like, you know, promoted me and all that, you know, obviously they wanted to keep me there. And so I was like, yeah. LinkedIn for context for everyone. This is 15 people, person company at this time, right? 15 to 20, 15 to 20, whatever it was. In that ballpark. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm like, yeah, just, you know, that what a master stroke by me. Right. I'm like, I just leveraged LinkedIn to get promoted and spoke. <laughs> and so um, maybe a month later, literally it was like 10 o'clock at night. I'm in the office by myself. I was single back then. Right? It's not like I had that many better things to do. And um, I'm, scr- I'm looking at the spoke data set side by side with the LinkedIn data set. And I was just like, yeah, they're, we can't compete against this. And these guys aren't even trying to compete against us. <laughs> And so I, re- I reached out to Tara. She was not there anymore. She had already left LinkedIn. Um, and so her email sort of auto-directed to a woman named Sarah Imbach, who was really kind of LinkedIn's COO in the early years and was a hugely influential person in the company's history, hugely. LinkedIn's probably not LinkedIn if Sarah was not there. She was like Reed's right hand. She was the operational foundation of the company. Got it. Um, and she's like, well, Tara's not here anymore, but I'm still interested. And I had met her in the original interview as I had met Reed. So I came back in and said, okay, well, obviously I've been promoted as spoke. So I need, you know, this is the title I need, um, which is pretty, you know, obviously I was young at that point, but um, yeah, they, and they said, okay, let's do this. And at that point I was really, because Tara had left, I was really the person that started LinkedIn jobs for all intents and purposes at that point, which was, that's what LinkedIn corporate solutions is. Right. And really at that point, we were not expected to be the primary revenue driver at all. The, the, the thought to be primary revenue driver was going to be advertising. Um, right. Cause that's, that's what Facebook's business model was right. on. It just and that's sense. what most, most consumer internet companies were based on. And so there really weren't a lot of like historical references to our business model, right. Which was, like, hey, we had advertising, we had jobs, we had online revenue. <clears throat> and so it really just became like a, you know, like kind of a race to relevance, you know? Right. And so, so how did you our- approach it? What was sort of like, did you, did you immediately land on this idea or was there a bunch of iteration? Did you try like different things before you landed on? It was really just as far as like what LinkedIn jobs became or what LinkedIn recruiter was. I mean, we... So there were definitely recruiters that used like the free product, right? But like, it didn't really occur to them that, you know, that this was anything that you would pay for. Right. And so really we just were like, let's just, you know, we're, you know, little, this is like in a whiteboard, you know, where we're the free product. Made- I imagine it probably had more free features than it does today. Yeah. It really didn't have anything to be frank, right? It had, like, it had some in mail, some introductions. Um, we had sort of the jobs. Sort of but I, I guess let me job. rephrase that. Like, like today, LinkedIn does a great job restricting what you can do if you're not paying. 
were you in, in a, as a sales leader, I imagine like coming in, like you probably didn't have all of that there because it's not built yet. And that makes it harder. I don't think people yeah, realize so there was you no, come in. Yeah. You couldn't pay for, there was no paywall around data. Right. 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 Um, which so was, you had to convince people to buy it before they were being blocked, you know, yeah, from sending no, too many requests or whatever. Yeah. Not only was there, there was no paywall around the data, but there was no difference between the online product and the, you know, sort of corporate product, right? So we were basically just taking things that were already available to yeah. you could buy for like, you know, 40 bucks, you know, twenty nine ninety nine a month on, on the website. Yeah. And we were just cobbling it together to create a, you know, to say this is the solution. And then, you know, obviously we were reaching out to like, you know, recruiting leaders, VPs of recruiting, VPs of talent. And we were saying, you know, and at that point, Monster, Hot Jobs, Cribble, those were the, those, the those were the stuff, dominant yeah. players in the space. And we were like, yeah, like, you know, games changed, right? Like you can't sit back and wait for active job seekers. You need to go out and, and, and aggressively recruit top talent, right? And, and top talent is not, not post, is not sending you uh, resumes on hot jobs, right? And so that was, that became the, so it was really, that was the entire like sort of 50,000 foot message, right? Which is the best recruiting organizations in the, in the world um, prioritize passive talent, right? Right. Uh, passive job seekers, which actually was really wasn't even true, right? I mean, like if you had a LinkedIn profile, you were hypothetically a passive job seeker, but most weren't, right? Right. But really it was just sort of frame, framing the narrative and this, we sort of tapped into you know, recruiting is off. Recruiting in HR is often treated like the redheaded stepchild in a lot of companies, right? Yep. Like they're treated like non-value added sort of members of the team a lot. They're just expected to get it done. Yeah. They're, they're, a lot of hiring managers at that point didn't respect recruiters, internal recruiters, right? And I knew this from my recruiting days because I was the agency guy right? that was trying to get around corporate recruiting to hiring managers, right? And so, you know, and that, that obviously was a useful reference point, but like, yeah, that, that's what we were like, like, Hey, this is your chance to, to shine in your organization. And so, I mean, obviously that's a pretty broad message, but like, it was just everything we talked about. Right. Which was like, you know, yeah. Like eliminate sort of third-party recruiting fees, get off monster, get off hot jobs. That's for, you know, that's, that's so five years ago, right? right. So, so what are the, can you talk a little bit about the revenue growth? Like in the first year, to, to, can you give uh, sort of some milestones roughly like what you guys got to at the end of the first year? Yeah, I think we went from like zero to 10 as far as like just LinkedIn corporate solutions. Right. In like 16 months, something like that. Zero to 10 million in 16 months. Maybe Roughly. 18 months. I could go, you know, like it's, you know, it's a I while mean, ago, that, right? Either way, like that's extreme success. Yeah. Our, our, we were just upset. Honestly, we were like, LinkedIn was a consumer internet company, right? That was what the, the mindset of the company was, which is very much like a field of dreams mindset, right? If you build yeah. it, they will come. Right. And like very much, hey, we don't need to sell this, right? Just build something great and they'll come to us kind of thing. And so we had to earn respect in the company, right? We were not, a lot of people were not super down, 
for LinkedIn having a sales organization. I won't name any names, but uh, some of them are uh, out actively uh, pushing uh, Miami. <laughs> Miami is the new tech destination. <laughs> they did not want us to have a sales team and they were openly sort of derisive of it, to be frank. Is that because they thought it would have a bad, bad sort of stigma on the brand pushing people to because spend money? Or? There was no histor- historical examples of consumer internet companies that were building like sort of an enterprise sales model on top of it, you know? Right, right. Not many. I mean, which is what's so exciting about LinkedIn's business today. That's <laughs> what was truly unique about it, right? But it yeah. was like there wasn't a lot of that, there was no um, prior examples. So it was all we were figuring it out. Right. And so there were some people that were like, you know, did not like us very much. And so we were like this, you know, sort of scrappy team in the corner. Right. Well, but it sounds like if you got fast success too, that probably just poured fuel on that fire. Right. Because then you're getting all the attention. And so we, we went from like the scrappy underdogs. I mean, it was a great experience, right? Because it was like, we were not the, we were not the like, people weren't throwing like rose petals at our feet. Right? Like, so we, you know, the, the stars of the company were on the product and the development side, which is fine. which was great. And many of those people and are it's like, fine. yeah, yeah. They're, they were very good friends of mine and still are. Um, I mean, I've seen that in many companies and I've seen it in, well, I've seen it more in like, <clears throat> there's some animosity towards sales when they're just doing really well and they get, I wouldn't the say it was animosity. It was curiosity. Okay. It was like, you know, it was like, you know, seeing something in the wild that you'd only heard about, you know? Um, right. And so it was more that. And they were like, what is this sales thing? You know, I'm like, gosh. What was the know, sales then, floor like? Like, what was the culture of the sales floor? Was it a, were you guys like loud standing up on the phones? Was it more of a quiet reserved office? What was it like in yeah, there at that time? I would say we were pretty, pretty collaborative and open. And, you know, so we were, you know, we were, it was, Actually, we were in, they had cubes in this office. It was in Palo Alto, across from Palo Alto Municipal Golf Course. So it was like, you know, it wasn't like a super, like, it wasn't like downtown Palo Alto or I guess downtown Newark as a reference for you. But, okay. um, but um, yeah, it was, yeah, we were very, a super tight knit group. We were, you know, we sort of created our own culture because, you know, we didn't have a sort of the broader culture to draw on, right? Because the yeah. rest of the company was pretty much focused on other stuff, right? They were focused on building features that would drive engagement and right. clicks and, you know, and people stay on the site longer. And so, we, you, you know, to... there was no... Sorry, Sorry go ahead. ahead. No, I was going to say, were you, were you able to... Uh, yes. Were you able to get good resources from tech as a, as a sales leader? Like Not when you had ideas no. and things? No. Not in the beginning, no, we had no resources from tech. Um, we didn't really have any resources from marketing either. So <laughs> you had to prove it, um, figure it out yourself, basically. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and obviously, we had, you know, the LinkedIn network was enough. Right. 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 And so there was a bounty there. And so obviously, quickly, we earned, you know, a lot of credibility. And we were, you know, there was a guy that ran the ad sales, ad sales side, and I ran the corp sales side. And my were goal you guys was competitive. To be, yeah. I, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know how competitive he felt with me, but I, I felt competitive with yeah. him, which, you know, in a healthy that's, way. That's right? good. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. But that's pretty much been my, <laughs> this, the case for me throughout my career, but I wanted to beat him every week. Um, and so, you know, we would sit down and walk through, 
you know, sort of, you know, where were we at for the month, what we were going to close that next sort of next week or next month, or we did that every Monday. And so like, you know, I was, you know, and that was what I told the team. We were going to beat him every week, week after week after week until they're like, Oh yeah, you're, you know, (laughs) Oh, we want to build around you guys. (laughs) You need that. You need that kind of fire in a, in a company. So how big did you grow the team? Like, like, essentially from like zero to, yeah, like zero to 40, zero to 35, zero to 40 okay. sort of range. And you were there, yeah. I forget how many years. Three, About three years. Three years, right. Okay. Um, but I was the head of sales. I wasn't the VP of sales, which was fine, right? But obviously LinkedIn. Was there a VP for, of sales? What's that? Was there a VP of sales at the time or no? There wasn't. But like, okay. I was pretty young at that point, yeah. right? So like. And then yeah, I mean, that's like you landed, in. like, like I said, it's the game, it's the life changing role. Like that was the perfect place for you to end up at that stage it was of your a, career. Yeah. LinkedIn was a great, you know, it was, um, you know, it's an incredible, it was an incredible experience just because, you know, when you're on the ground, you, you're there, like, and obviously what LinkedIn became, you know, what it was a, even a, you know, a year after I left it was so much different than what, you know, what, it, what it was when I started. But yeah, when you're there on a whiteboard, sort of, you know, nothing else to draw on just like your own problem solving skills, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, you take that with you and say, I know that I've done that before. I also know that, you know, where I also knew that wherever I did it again would probably be harder because you probably weren't going to have this sort of viral network sort of feeding sort of right. the enterprise model. Um, but still, right. You, we were on a white, you know, we were on a whiteboard, just, you know, <laughs> nobody was like knocking down our door being like, God, I want to buy so- enterprise software from LinkedIn. Nobody was. Right. Um, so, so let's talk about that though. That's an interesting transition into, into EcoSign. So I guess a, how and why did you decide to leave? And then, you know, walk me through meeting Jason or, you know, how this all came about. Yeah. I mean, first off, I felt like, um, I wanted to be like the VP of sales. Right. Right. So I was like head of sales on LinkedIn. I didn't really know if I was going to, you know, I sort of, view, I felt like they viewed me as this guy's great and let's hi- go hire somebody, you know, let's go hire an older, more experienced VP of sales right. that Brennan will roll to. That makes sense. I mean, you're in your early twenties at this point, right? Not early twenties, but yeah, mid, I was, I was young, <laughs> certainly like for that time and sort of the software, the SaaS space, super young, even yeah. to, to be, even be thought of as a potential VP of sales. And so I had known Jason, we were an early Equison customer at, at LinkedIn. Okay. So we used the product and I was like, it's one of the few products I'd ever seen salespeople like, you know? Um, and so I knew him that way. And so I knew in our paths had crossed a few other ways and, you know, he reached out to me and he said, you know, I want to, you know, if you'd come, you can come in here. It's your show. You're, you know, you're the VP of sales. Like, and, and at that point there weren't a lot of SaaS companies back in 2000. That's you're talking about 2008, 2009 timeframe. Yeah. There really weren't like, right. (laughs) There was probably about, 97% 97% less companies. Yeah. I mean, that, I was just getting out of out college there. in 08 and, and it was not like yeah. a talked about thing to get into SaaS or software. 
Yeah. And so I had really like, you know, the, my experience on LinkedIn, it was truly, that really was like a VP of sales experience. Right. And so I said, you know, I'm going to bet on me here. Right. And in this case, there will be no doubt <laughs> if I'm successful that, you know, that I did that kind of and thing. It was all you know, you. which is, yeah. yeah it's, and let's be honest, like personal achievement and ego. Of course. It's, yeah, for sure. it's a motive. It's a motivator early for sure. <laughs> um, and so that was sort of my mindset coming in was, if I, if I can succeed here and if I can, if I can make this happen, um, you know, at that point, I'll never have to, you know, I'm a VP, I'm at least a VP of sales yeah, <laughs> or whatever you're, you're I do. Kind of, you've, you've gotten to that point and there's no going back. So, so walk me through it. So I know for me, right, I, I did the VP sales thing twice and I would say my first time was probably more of like a director head of sales role. It had the VP title, but like, it was more a more similar to, to what you're talking about, right? And then and then I went yeah. to Aircall to be a VP where I had already done it once before. And so I felt, and I'm curious if if you can relate or or whatnot, like I felt so much more prepared the second yeah. time. Um and so going into into uh Echo Sign, I keep I think I kept saying it wrong, Eco Science, Echo Sign, right? It's okay. <laughs> um so going into there. You know, how did you treat your first 90 days? Like, how did you approach that? Because obviously you achieved enormous success. So I'm curious to really dive in. You've got now the experience from LinkedIn. So like you've learned lessons, you know, you have the the foresight to really think about how you're going into this. So what was the, what was the game plan going into that job? Yeah. So when I came in it was like a low point for the company. Like, you know, when I started their, v, their first VP of sales was gone. Okay. Either having been fired or quit, which is still to and they this were day. at roughly what in revenue and employees? Maybe like I don't know, a million and a half in ARR or a million, you know. It's early. Um, maybe ten or eleven employees, two salespeople, right? So it's very early. They had had a ten sale ten person sales org, and then eight of them when the first VP of sales left or was fired. Yeah. Um, eight people just up and left, like literally between the time that that guy left and when I started, almost everybody left, right? Okay. Left or, you know, again, hazy details <laughs> as to right, exactly right. how it went down. It wasn't going. And so well. there was, there were just two salespeople left. There was like the more experienced sort of, you know, like the one rep that had closed all the business kind of deal. Right. And there was this other guy, this kid who was like a, had been sort of like an SDR was kind of like an SMP sales guy who was a guy named Sam Blonde. Right. And so um, those were like the two sales, those were the two people. And so really my, you know, I was. So morale, let me, let me just try to try to put my head around this. So you're coming in. Morale is probably bad, right? People are not, you're not on like that, that like you're not riding a wave of success right now. People are not in a great mindset was this the first and only VP sales they fired or were there multiple? That was one. One. Right. Okay. We'd been there for a year, but you know, like I've written about this, right? Like even your first, if you miss on your first VP sales, you're never going to get that year back. Right. It's very hard to come it's, back from. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost so a you, blessing that a lot of those reps left and you kind of had a bit of a clean slate. It's a little bit less of like cultural damage to clean up. That is, that's a good point. Right. Because yes, it, it certainly, it quickened the, yeah. you know, like, let's get into the, you know, meat of this. I didn't have to spend a quarter like, oh, let's evaluate the current team and decide 
Right. You exactly. Know, who should stay or who shouldn't or whatever. Right. Cause that's typically so, the first 90 days. Yeah. So it helped. And so, yeah, obviously like the first thing I, I you know, I mean, they were, they executed very poorly, right. They were running like enterprise, you know, it was, not, it was everything needed to just get sped up. Right. And they were like slow playing these sales cycles for not very big deals at that point. And so basically, and I mean, like, it's a contract software. Like it, I would imagine the sales cycle, even for a huge account, doesn't have to be that complicated, right? Yeah, I mean, what, what, yes. with the exceptions of legal and whatever has to happen there, but like you're selling a, a pretty simple. Yeah, I tool. would say like most of the early customers were um, more SMB, SMB and bin market, right? So like again, so it's you know, long sales cycles just couldn't happen, right? Yeah. Yeah, you don't have the time. And so my my take was like, why do you have like a fourteen stage sales cycle for you know when your average deal size is like five k? Like, I don't understand, right? Like, I don't understand what you're doing. And so really, like, I came in and I was like, well, the first thing I need to do is just prove to myself that can we do better than we're doing? (laughs) To be frank, Right. right? Which is like, you know, can we increase our deal size? Can we speed up our sales cycle? Can we, you know? So how do you approach sales. that? Do you do you say, all right, I'm going to close a few deals myself? What's the? How yeah, do you prove I would that? say my my approach is just get in, you know, just partner up with the rep. And at that point, it was one of two people. Yeah. Um. So part, you know, partner with one or the other, whoever the rep is. And my kind of my approach has always been like, hey, like I'm jumping in. Like my job is to help contribute. My job is not to sit there and like in a corner and evaluate you and take no, Oh, you know, shake my head or, you know, right. I really wanted them to feel comfortable with me joining them on calls and that it would be helpful or value add. And so I was, that was my take is like, yeah, like I'll either be a value add on these calls or I just won't be on them. Right. And I guess um, the agenda is, is mutually beneficial, right? You're telling them, look, the goal is to, to shorten yeah. the sales cycle. So let's, let's yeah. work on that. And so, yeah. So like a lot of it was just like, um, yeah, it was, you know, it's hard. It's, people have asked me like, what's your sales philosophy or methodology? And like, at some point I should probably like write that down, <laughs> but I like, yeah, either. don't it, worry about it. <laughs> it. You know, I mean, basically it was like, yeah, we need to like, we need to show them like production value of the product yeah, as soon yeah. as quickly as possible, whether that's in a demo or a pilot, you'd rather, if you can show it in a, in a, in a, on a sales call or in a demo, sort of as close to like game, you know, game time conditions as possible. Right. Were uh, you guys, were you guys up against, was it DocuSign was the big yeah, one? Yeah, it was Docu. it was EchoSign and DocuSign. It was yeah. like, um, and so, and we were like the less funded, you know, sort okay. of underdog in that fight. Cause they were they, a little bit earlier than you, right? They started a little earlier. They started earlier and they raised like a billion dollars. And Got we it. raised seven million dollars. Right? What was the thought there? Actually, I've always been curious about this. Like, what what was Jason's thought to go build? So, I don't know the details of the two products. I imagine they're like it's like sales loft and outreach at this point, right? Like, I don't he know was a, so his, different. He's he's a lawyer by trade, right? I so see. He, so that's how he, you, get into it. you know he went to law school. So he you know a lot of his early career was sort of you know centered around like contracts. Uh, documents, contract, and document execution. So that was sort of the yeah that and his his wife also a lawyer, an attorney. So she's Mellon, who's okay. That makes that brings some yeah. context to it. Was yeah. did he see like was his 
did he see something wrong with DocuSign that he said, we're going to do better? Or did he see such a big opportunity? They said, we're going to take a piece of that. I would say he didn't get into it because of DocuSign really, right? DocuSign was not a very like well thought of company at that point, as far as like when he started. Right. I would say when I started, obviously DocuSign was more, you know, back in like early 09, you know, DocuSign was more established certainly at that point. But it was just, you know, I think our feeling was this is such a, this, there's, it's just so much white space to run here that like, you know, at this point, we don't really need to be obsessed about, you know, one potential competitor. Yeah, eventually there's buy, differentiation. And I mean, really, there's room just, for there's two just, players anyway. There was room for two, definitely yeah. room for two players. Yeah. And so, and then as things started, you know, we started doing well and doing better and our deal sizes started going up. And we started to get into more consequential deals. Obviously, then now, now we're going head to head, right? Um, and so that was. And how long did know, that take for you to get into those those larger deals? It's pretty quick, you know. Right. Like um, within a year. Yeah, I would say within a within a. I mean, we were already in some of those deals, right? But we were not. Generally speaking, we were really winning them. Sort of when I came in, I would say with any regularity. And so, you know, we were like, anytime DocuSign was in the deal against us, we were like, you know, just add attention, you know, right. it was sort of battle stations type of scenario, right? And we, it was incredibly competitive, right? And that was great. That, that person was a great experience for me, right? Because obviously you come from LinkedIn where you have this huge network and sort of all this sort of tailwind, so to speak. And then now you're the the underdog, the less right. less funded underdog competing against a company that's got, you know, more money, more engineers, more features. It was like me it. at air call up against talk desk and ring central. Sure. Similar yeah. type of, how did yep. you, how did you think about that? Actually? Like <clears throat> you obviously had to craft, you know, what your, what your pitch was against DocuSign. H- how did you guys sell against them? Yeah. So, you know, and that was great you know, for me, it was a great experience, right? Because, um, you know, we had to find out what we did. What do we do well? Right. right? What do we do well that we just think we were, you know, is a philosophical difference with DocuSign. And then how do we translate that into how we sell? Cause it's not features, it. right? I imagine you were in the same boat as me at air call where it's like, we're not going to be able to sell on features. In fact, our competitors had more features. So we had to figure out a different way to be different. And we went down the route of user experience, customer experience, that whole thing. Yeah. So we felt like the one area that we had, yeah, it was the user experience to sign a document, right? Not the, not the, not the, all the different things you could do to create a document or modify a document or create sort of different, different ways or workflows to sign a document. But the the one thing we felt like, you know, we were better at was the user experience to sign a document really, which was really the, what is the, the, that's the, the end cons- product. Yeah. What is the consumer experience to sign a document, which is your customers. Right. 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 And so we, our philosophy was we can make the sales cycle about that. We're going to win. And if they make the sales cycle about anything other than that, they're going to they win. win. <laughs> right. And so that's, you know, it was basically like we had one thing going for us, generally speaking. Yep. And we leveraged that like, to the it's, it's so relatable for me like it was the same thing at air call we knew we were short on features and stuff but like the ui was beautiful and that's what people were so impressed with so we said 
this is what we're going to sell on that we built this specifically to be the beautiful, yep. simple minimalist. Yeah. So basically, yeah, our approach was, this is what it's about. This is what our entire narrative is about. We knew exactly how to like deposition all the other things. Right. Yep. Which was like, it's great. You know, our joke was like, you know, which has become more important. Right. But DocuSign was like, there's all these different ways that you can authenticate a signer. And we would joke about like, yeah, like, you know, we think it's great that they have like, you know, sort of eyeball authentication, you know, like, <laughs> but in reality, your customers don't really want to sign documents that way. Right. And right. so we had a way to sort of deposition de really their entire narrative on the other side. And then we'd say, yeah, the only thing that matters here is, is the, what is the experience for your customers? Right. Because when you roll this out, like they'll prop, most of them will probably be signing electronically for the first time ever. So you're going to take a process hundreds of years old, right. Mm -hmm. uh, with pen and paper, and you're going to make it entirely an online experience and it better be intuitive and easy to do the first time. Right. And if it isn't, it's a failure. Right. And this is, right. you know, this is the, the kind of failure people lose jobs over. <laughs> so we were, that was the narrative, right? It, we wanted there to be perceived risk in DocuSign um, and, the, and that their their priorities were it's table stakes, what the signing experience is. And we Makes absolutely- a lot of sense. Uh, you found your strength. So for everyone who's listening, when you're in a, yeah. competitive, a competitive space, like it's about finding that strength and it can be one thing and you just have to drive it home. It's about finding your strength and then- and their making, weakness, making your strength, the narrative of the, right. of the, of the process. Right. And like, basically our approach was like, this is, you know, this will be what this sales cycle is about. It's going to be all about this. And, so did you get you know, to, Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, did you get to a place within the first year, just for a bit of a timeline where you felt like your team was no longer perceiving your product as the underdog or was it always no you guys still felt that and you were always pushing past that or through that i would say post acquisition <laughs> okay um there was maybe that feeling amongst some people at adobe or whatever right and so and if that's the case that's that's going to filter in that's right. going to seep into the mindset somewhat but no it we were never a lot, man it says a lot because you know in hindsight it's 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 easier to look at Brendan and Jason and say like, Oh yeah, they, they built a huge competitor and, you know, in a big space. But like when you were in that space, you were the underdog, right? Like you, you were, we were, figuring we were the, uh, we were the underdog and we were. And so, yeah. And like, mo you know, the underdog in a company that had been through some adversity, right. Obviously yeah, when I came yeah. in was, or when I started was a low point and right. And so it was like, I think everyone in the company felt sort of particular glee, right? When well, we I'll started. tell you, by the way, I actually think that that's, that's not a bad way for a VP to come in because it can no. really only get a lot better, <laughs> right? You can make a few changes yes. and, and people like you pretty yes. quickly. <laughs> yeah. And I've told, I've told that to other people like, Hey, like the, you know, can you do better than the last guy did? And they're that's like, yes, thing. I'm yeah. positive. And they said, great. That probably buys you a year. Yeah. <laughs> at least, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. The, the first so, 90 days is like, how can yes. I fix as many of the things that the last person did that pissed everyone off, if I can fix some of those things, well, I can yeah. earn the respect of the team pretty quickly. Exactly. And you're going to be, you know, a hero to the founder or the CEO. Right. For, 
for a while, right? Right. Maybe six um, months. <laughs> but never, never forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah, that, and so that was like the, you know, and so I think the company took particular, you know, there was like this, you know, everyone was so bought in and obviously part of, you know, we weren't like a mass you know, overfunded, you know, sort right. of bloated. We were pretty lean, right? Pretty lean. We were profitable. I would say within when I got there, like two quarters, Wow. which obviously people try and um, neg profitability in the, in the, in, in the software world. Uh, but I mean, like, I, I think there's nothing cooler to be able to brag yeah, about because you're, nobody owns you at that point, right? Yeah. Like yeah. nobody can really fuck with you at that point. And so, yeah. um, and so we, there was like, everybody in the company was just loved beating DocuSign, right? That was like the, that was like, you know, because it pissed, it pissed them off to no it end. It gets right? so serious. Yeah. I mean, when I was at my first company, single platform, we had a competitor, Yex, who you've probably heard <laughs> yeah. of. And we used to do basketball yes. tournaments against Yex. Like we were really, really intense with the competition. Like we yeah. actually took it to the streets and would like play basketball against them and stuff. But like we were fired yeah. up and, and that's what made it really fun. I am curious though, how did you guys handle pricing against DocuSign? Did like, cause I imagine that's a big decision. Are you going to, are you going to undercut them? Which, which could devalue your product. Are you going to price it? The I would same? say like, like, I would say it was like, it was pretty negligible. Like it was, a, it was going to generally cost the same either way. Okay. And like, so you specific, you intentionally said, we do not want to undercut on price. If, if that was your decision, I have to think that you, you made that conscious. Yeah. I mean, decision. we didn't always know, right. We didn't always know exactly where we stood from a pricing standpoint against them, but, but it, it wasn't you know, your marketing strategy to say like, we're less expensive. No, right. You can't win, you know, like it's a bad idea. That's why I ask. Cause, yeah, you, cause can't you, that successfully. That's you can't win. That's the easy choice to just, make just because it's cheaper, right? Like that's just, you know, maybe in like an incredibly transactional model, right? Where it's just, you I know. think you can win short term that you can get some market share, but uh, long term, yeah. I, I don't think you're going to win that way. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, we were probably like, I don't know, a little bit less from a pricing standpoint, but like, I just don't think that was, you know, like. It wasn't your sales pitch, basically. No, it, yeah. it, was, it wasn't in like, that's, you know, that's a learning from early in my career, right? That like my early jobs before I was ever a sales leader, like when I was like a, but even before LinkedIn, you yeah. know, I was in startups and we would do like swap deals, right? And stuff like that. And I became like the biggest anti-swap person ever really kind of like, because it's just so not sustainable, you know? Yeah. It's not, it's like a false, you know, it's, it's a false it's a false win, essentially. That was the feeling I had. It makes sense. And so yeah, you, what was, you, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, cause cause we're 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 running up on time, I think, soon, but what was it like working for Jason Lemkin? Like, you know, for everyone in the audience, obviously I think everyone probably knows who he is. He's the godfather of SAS in my mind, right? Um yeah. what was it like working with him? Was you know, did did it I guess I guess what I'm curious to ask is like when you were working with him. Was he this SaaS expert or did he have this revelation after all of this success? Yeah, he did. I mean, he was like, he had, he definitely had like a vision, like, like where, how are things going to play out? Like, over, yeah. you know, uh, six, 12, 18 months. And he was right about those things pretty much all the time. So I would say like him and Reed, Jason and Reed are like pretty similar in that way. Right. As they had this sort of like, superpower to sort of just map out how it's going to play out. 
Um, you know, like so they had what a are good these, pulse on, on, on yeah, like what are all the, all these things we're doing today, these small things we're doing today, how do they fit into the bigger picture? Um, and that's, that's helpful for a startup, right? Because, yeah. you know, you have to be able to see whatever, see the forest from the trees or whatever you want to say. So what about like his management at- style with you, I guess, to, to give a little tactical advice to the other CEOs and, and VPs out there. Like I know for me in, in both of my VP roles, it was very different the way I was managed by my CEO. Um, some pros, some cons either way, but you know, what was his style? I mean, were you guys, were you meeting together every day? Was he very hands-off and it was like every week? Yeah, we were. Him? I mean, we were in a, you know, see where you're sitting right there. There was a loft in our building. Okay. Like over your right shoulder and it was up above. And so that's where Jason was, right? Got it. So he, he couldn't like see my monitor or something, right? But like, if I said, hey, Jason, he would, yeah, what's up? <laughs> you know? Got so it. he so was right so up there. Were, and so you yeah, were at so that we, small sort of, uh, yeah, in our, that, fir- that where the company's still one team, essentially. Like in our first building, we had like one side of the building is where like sales and marketing and Jason were, and then the other side is right. where the dev team was, right? Um, it's like, I'm not encouraging people to split up sales and dev or anything. Like, I mean, it's pretty uh, natural anyway, from what I've seen, no one wants he to was, sit near I mean, he was, incredi- he was incredibly supportive. Um, he was, you know, he, everything he was doing was trying to help me and help us be successful. Never, really never any real drama. And sort of some people had sort of pegged him as difficult to work with before. And he just never was for me, right? And I think, you know, that, that like I said, that was a low point when I came in, right? Yep. And he was making, his bet was me. He was making a bet on me. It wasn't like, you know, the board was split on me, by the way, right? Because they were like, who's this, you know? The board's hire split someone on old. everyone. Yeah, let's way. go hire someone older, right? Right. And Jason's like, no, my, Brendan is the person I'm betting on. And like, his success will be our success. And if he fails, you, you, you know, you can, I'll, t- you know, I'll take whatever the consequences are, which would have been Jason stepping out of CEO, right? Right. Well, and, and he so, was right. Of course, and, and I didn't know all that, by the way. <laughs> so, for the, that was for the that best. Didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't come in with that sort of, you know, understanding of what that looked like. And so, yeah, I mean, that's the, the best advice I can give a CEO and a founder is just, just total support um, for your, your VP of sales. Um, you know, which seems like a simple concept, but is not, not well, it's it's actually like what you just said as the one piece of advice, total support for your VP sales is usually not what we get. We usually get total no. pressure, right? And and that's generally how we're led is just pressure, 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 pressure. And and I would say he also did a good job of, yeah, of you can't like insulate yourself from, from the pressure totally, right? But he, you know, he didn't like, he wasn't like we didn't get into a board meeting and he's like, yeah, just. Yeah, Brendan, go, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I think some CEOs are good at making it feel like the pressure's on both of us rather than the yeah. pressure's on me. Well, I think the and fact that J- Jason had done it, had been a founder before, um, he had had jobs and stuff, right? And he had, you know, had success and failure. So he had, you know, there was a experience and context. And so, you know, with a lot of founders, they don't have it. They don't yeah. have... yeah they don't have a lot of experience. They don't have, you know, like they don't have, you know, how would you know, right? How could you know what is good, great, or indifferent? Um, they don't know. Right. And that's the, 
you know, and that's, I know that one of the things you want to talk about is like consulting. That was one of the, one of the reasons what sort of drove me into consulting was not drove me. That's into, a good transition, like, by the way. Let's, yeah, let's it was dive into one that. of the yeah. super appealing parts of it was like, you know, Hey, I can, I can just tell the truth all the time. Right. And if anyone has ever been a VP of sales has been in many positions where you're like, well, I could tell you the truth, but I don't think that's what you want to hear. <laughs> so what should <laughs> and, I and tell, I'll tell you, man, that's been the nail in my coffin is like, I, I just like, I say the truth, man, every time <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Like whether you want to hear it or not. And and I know, like, that's the pro- yeah. If you're going to, if you're going to run sales in a startup or a growth company, there's no truth, right? It's just like in reality, right? It's just like, yeah, like I'd like to go do this over here, right? <laughs> like, you know that you're going to do it exactly the way it's, it's just, you right? never there's know. So many, no one knows. There's so many moving parts and there's so many like, you know. It's a game just, of testing and iterating and, it is. and that's all it is. And so, yeah, I would say that's, um, you know, with founders as a advisor or consultant, I just tell them the truth. And I have, I've been like, yeah, you. I'm like, hey, I know that you feel great about what you're doing right now, but this is a this is a weak spot right here, and if you don't get serious about it, it's gonna fuck you, right? Yeah. Um, and then I and the, this is with one founder. I won't say who it is. And I said, and by the way, I don't think you have any any real. Uh, you're gonna tell me you agree with me right now, but you don't have any any res- resolution around that, right? You don't have right. You don't mean it. And yeah. so in a year, we're going to come back to this and you're going to be like, God damn, right. I wish I had taken that seriously then, you know? <laughs> and he's like, wait, so you're telling me that I'm like, not, I'm being dishonest with myself. I said, yes, you're being dishonest with yourself. Right. I said, I'm not going to freaking bullshit you, man. Like, I don't care. You don't want to work with me. Fine. Like I'll go do something else tomorrow. But like, yeah. if you don't want to hear the truth, like you, we shouldn't work together anyways. Right. Cause I, I'm not doing you much of a service. Uh, and I think that's why they end up hiring the VPs of sales in, in times where maybe you shouldn't and you should use a consultant because they just tell you what you want. Well, to hear. It also makes them want you and I more, right? When we tell them that, right? Say that when again? Tell them, it also makes them want you and I more, right? Oh, As yes. Advisors and consultants when we tell them the truth. But then if they hire us full time, we're probably going to stop telling the truth at some point, no matter how much experience you have, right? Because you just and have an agenda that you have to get done at a certain yeah, point. Yeah. The minute it becomes like a, a, a political decision around like, do I want to level with you or not? Um, and that's why like, you know, Revenue Collective, Sam Jacobs, who's a very good friend of mine. And yep. I was, you know, Sam and I talked a lot about that uh, sort of even before he started, uh, before he started doing Revenue Collective. That's such a powerful concept, right? Because, you know, sort of the aspect of community and like, because a lot, we're, we've all been in the same shit, right? On some level. Um, yeah, yeah. And if you're doing it for growth companies or startups and you've done it and been successful and failed, you know, like there's, it's so different than like, you know, I was at Microsoft or Salesforce or wherever else, right? Um, so anyways, it's a, it, there, it's a shared, you know, sort of shared spirit, I think. Got it. How much uh, more time do you have? We, I want to, I wanted to I touch on two more things. As long as you want. All right. So th- I was going to say, if we want to skip over talk desk, we can, but uh, do, do you want to touch a little bit on what that experience was like? You were there for, I think a little over a year. 
Yeah, it was there. So TalkDesk was um, obviously, I think, you know, I don't know if you know Tiago. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Who's the founder and the CEO. So it was like a, I was like the first really employee in the United States. Um, so Port- based in Portugal, right? Mostly. Yeah, based in Portugal. And when I joined there, actually, the support cloud, what is now broadly referred to as support cloud, was considered to be like the you know biggest loser space on earth. <laughs> really? Oh yeah, it was. You've heard of five nine, right? Oh yeah. Five nine's worth ten billion dollars now, I think, or something. I think their market cap was like two hundred fifty million at that point, right? Wow. And so I went to talk to us, Jason invested <laughs> as the first investor, so we kind of did That's that. That's how in you got the other. intro. And Jason was like, "Yeah, he's like one of the problems is like you know it's like investing." you know, you're paying sort of a premium to buy a house in a bad neighborhood kind of thing, right? When you talked about sort of the comps in the space. And it's interesting to see how that space has evolved just in five, six years, right? It's now, it's enormous. you know, TalkDesk is worth over 3 billion, of which I'm obviously pretty excited about. Yeah. Um, and you have other company, you know, five nines worth 10 billion. Ring Central's worth what, 40 billion? It's right? Ring Central's a behemoth, man. It's, it's yeah. unbelievable. And so... Yeah, it's just, it's, you know, at that point, when we came in, we were like, you know, that was, that was not an easy sell. <laughs> like, Well, the product a, wasn't that good back then, right? Because no, I, I no. used it. So I remember it's come a long way. <laughs> yeah, we, one of our early customers was Zenefits, um, where Sam Bond was the CRO and all that stuff. And so, you know, it's a friend and they rolled it out and it just didn't work. The phone was like, the phones <laughs> didn't work. And we <laughs> and we were like, we, we spent all this time like trying to figure out why it wasn't working and all that stuff. Yeah. And Tiago, Tiago's a good friend. So I'm, I'm comfortable talking about this. He's just like, what can you do? The phone doesn't work, right? Like, <laughs> you're giving me so flashbacks, we like, man. I had all these same problems at AirCall. It was yeah. like, and so I, <laughs> myself and this guy, yeah, this guy, Paul Donati, he was my first sales hire, he was one of my best friends. And, you know, he's, you know, obviously excited they're worth 3 billion now, but Paul and I, after this thing, right. And we're like, okay, we're selling sort of essentially a cloud phone, right. That's we're yeah. selling a, we're selling a voice enabled platform. There weren't even browser. names for it really at the time. And right? we're like, Hey, like, you know, buy this product, buy this sort of call center in the cloud, by the way, the phone doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> when and I we're started like, an we're air call, around, we're like, the phone doesn't work, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> We're My selling first... you a product in the cloud, call center in the cloud, and literally <laughs> the one thing that has to work, which is the damn phone, it doesn't work. <laughs> People don't realize like cloud phones are basically a hack, right? Like the, the internet was not designed to like process yeah. phone calls. And like when I started at AirCall, the first thing I noticed was that nobody cold calls and they're only just sending emails, emails, yeah. emails. I'm By like, the way, the, the phone does work now for talk to us. Yes. And, and I will listening. say that it, it does work very well at air call as well. Um, but it's a but journey was, to build those, those yeah. platforms. And it, it takes a lot of trial and error and, and, yeah. you and know, was, we, we both joined during that time. It sounds like. Yeah. And so we grew exceptionally fast um, in that time. And then, you know, Tiago, we were in Mountain View at that point. So I live in Los Gatos. For anyone listening, which is in peak valley times, right? Commute times is like a three and a half hour round trip commute to San Francisco. And so I sort of told Tiago in the beginning, I said, you know, because he was recruiting me to do this. And I was like, 
not really sure how long I want to do this. I certainly don't probably don't want to do this for four years. So I think so you were I, commuting really far, right? Yeah. And I said, and he's like, and I said, I'll give you a year, maybe two. And he's like, okay. And I said, you know, and then he's like, and then we were like, we're probably going to move to San Francisco at some point. And I said, then I'll give you a year, maybe two, or when we move to San Francisco. Right. And so that was kind of the, and really the city, it's ironic. Everybody was moving to San Francisco at that point, back in like 2015, 2016. Now everybody's moving out of San Francisco, right? right. So, um, but yeah, that, and so it was fun and it was a great, I mean, it was a great experience, challenging, super challenging, um, but fun. And we built an amazing team. Like that team, that's the best sort of founding sales team I've ever built. So you remember was, Spencer? Of course. Yeah. Spencer yeah, was so, my, my, he sold me talk desk when I was yeah, at so, doctor.com. Yeah. I hired Spencer and Frank Golden and Chris Rudigrap, who's now at Sendoso, was one of our AEs. So there's like five, I think there's like four or five VPs of sales just off of that first 10 hires. Came out of there. Isn't that awesome to see that? Yeah. That's the, that's really like the biggest reward. Yeah. Beyond money, beyond money and equity and all that, but like that's the biggest reward, right? Is seeing those people. It's so you know, cool. Uh, like I see yeah. people that I trained sales. It's seeing them go on to great success companies. and then yeah. and then taking credit for their success. Just kidding. <laughs> um, well, we can do it right now. It's okay. <laughs> no, but it's it's yeah. It, that's the best part of the you know, that's the best part of the job. And that was like, you know, talk desk. That became my my approach was I want to everyone I want to hire want to have that kind of ambition and drive which a lot of VPs of sales will tell you they don't want people like that because they think they're you know they're they're heads in the clouds they're not focused on executing today but that's you know that's now like you know obviously I haven't really done it full-time although I am now I'm now a CEO for my own startup but we're hitting these transitions perfectly on on uh, on cue. So <laughs> I was gonna say let's let's yeah. talk about about co sales. So I'm excited about this. I mean, when you mentioned it to me, it was you know one of those I would say top top three for the year moments where I'm like, why didn't I think of that? Kind of right. Yeah. You get those a few times a year, and this was one of them because um, it's so friggin' obvious. Yeah. But like, no one's doing anything about it. Do you want to uh, explain what it is? Yeah, it's 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 pretty straightforward, right? It's it's trying to drive our go-to-market motion more around sort of introductions, referrals, warm introductions uh, through people we know and through people that know our our prospective customers, instead of through you know cold calls, cold emails, et cetera, et cetera. That's the general thought process around it. So is the concept? Um, let me ask because I think I understand it, but let me let me ask in my sort of. Uh, you know, fourth grade reading level sort of if I'm, so I'm trying to, let's say I'm trying to sell air call, right. And uh, I'm trying to get in touch with prospects. And I know that I want to go after, we have a great integration with Zendesk and I want to go after all these Zendesk customers. And normally right. what my team would do is build a list of them and cold outreach. And so is the idea here that I can bring that list into cosell.io, cross-reference it against other yeah. lists find those mutual overlaps and, and facilitate introductions. Yeah. So you can basically with Zendesk, you guys can sort of connect and find out where do our customer ecosystems overlap and intersect. And that's the general idea behind it, right? Is that there's, there's now so many companies that are running a parallel race with you. Yeah. 
that aren't competing for the same destination. And so it just doesn't make any sense for us to be like, you know, trying to do it alone when we have other people, you know, there's thousands of companies that sell to CROs and market right, right. and CMOs and, and VPs of support and that are not competing for the same dollars that you are. And so what if we said, Hey, like, what if, what if I knew where my prospective customer intersected with Zendesk's existing customers and vice versa, although obviously for Aircall, right? <laughs> There's a lot more in it for you than there is for Zendesk, obviously, right? And that's part of the complexity of it. Sure. Um, but yeah, that's, it's just, it's just so hard right now with, there's just so much noise and there's so much, 10 years ago, the demand was expected to be owned by marketing almost entirely 10, 15 years ago, 15 years ago, for sure. Now it's almost entirely owned by sales. And right? I hate sales. it because it, it really should not, it's not the way it's supposed to be. No. And so sales, and you've been pitched many jobs as have I, and I guarantee you, whether you admit it or not, you're like, how many leads a month do you have? And they're like, none. And you're like, okay, cool. That's why um, I loved air call, man. It was all inbound <laughs> when I started. Yeah. We're swimming and so in leads. Like, and so increasingly, because marketing, nobody gets to be Salesforce in 1999 again, right? Where you're a single solution, you right. know, really the, almost the only SaaS company on earth competing against one other company. Now there's just so much noise. So you have the customers right. and the buyers have so much noise and they're, everybody's sort of brute forcing it the same way. That's what we call brute force, outreach, sales loft, zoom That's info. It going, yeah. And, and it's got to thing. change. That's why well, this is such a breath of fresh air. Because- so I know, I know Manny um, at outreach. Well, I'm friends with Manny. I'm friends with Kyle at sales loft as well. And I think you should do that, right? That's like table stakes. That's not going to go away. Yeah, It's like cold calling 10 years ago. You just have right. to do it all. But like, it's not enough, right? It's not right. enough. And like, and so if you can take just a little bit of pressure off, off of that model, right? Because it's like a, it's like a powder cake, right? It's like, there's so much wrapped up in that, in that playbook. And if it's off, just like 2%, yep. you're fucked. Right. Um, right. It like, it's just, it's just not, you know, you're like, yeah, well, it's like a, a what if scenario. What if 10 things all broke just right for us, right? Maybe we could, you know, freaking get out from under and that's not, yeah. you don't want to build a company that way. It has to be easier than that. And so introductions convert like 200 X to, you know, infinitely higher rates, Yeah, right? They close, there's less, you know, it's, there's less pressure. There's less, you know, you're not in. It's, you're it's not, a warm intro. It's, it's, it's always yeah, going to be better. <laughs> and it, it cuts through the demand creation part, right? And when e- everything you're doing is about not just, you know, sort of solving a need or solving demand, but creating yeah. demand. It's just a rock that, you know, there's very few ever, ever. It'll, and It and allows you also what, to be more strategic, which I really like, right? Exactly. Like, and there's, it's the concept of like scorched earth, right? It's like, you only get to scorch the earth one time, right? And then it's just, then you're just coming back in and you're like, hey, dude, like there's nothing left. I'll scorch it yeah. again, you know? Right, right. And so that's the, that's the idea. And like, it's a behavioral change. It's a huge change in the, in behavior. And so, and that's, that's why, to me, that's the most interesting companies are changing behavior through software. Yeah. And 
this is the most, this is the, you know, it's really, to me, it's the most important thing I've done in my career. Um, and it's the one thing that I felt like, Hey, like I'm willing to accept the consequences here. Right. First off, I'm the founder and CEO. Right. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's on me and on our team. But the second part is like, I'm okay with, you know, I think I'm obviously, I think I'm going to be successful. I think I have a track record of it. I feel like I'm right. Right. But obviously in the early days of a startup, right. You're constantly going through this. It all comes down to execution, which I think you've got, obviously all the, all the knowledge, all the experience, all the resources, you got everything you need to, to make it happen. I'm curious to get to dive in a little bit on the, on the, the bigger vision, right? So does it go beyond just introductions? Because once I start thinking about it, I, I I could see this being just a whole platform for that entire interaction. When I think back, we yeah. did a lot of co-selling at Aircall with our integration partners, but those that actual sales process was yeah. really messy and really challenging. And so we would be in situations, to give you a scenario here, we'd be in situations where we have a a prospect that we're trying to get on air call in order for them to buy air call. They also need to pick like a CRM or a ticketing desk. So they're shopping for both and they need to play together. Yep. Right. And so that's where we end up co-selling quite often. We'll be with Zendesk or, or uh, you know, uh, front or whatever, you know, any of these. Uh, yep. and, and then we're trying to close the deal together. Yep. And those deals I've seen, become very, very messy. You end up with a salesperson who's kind of blaming the other team. Oh, he's, he's not trying hard enough to close it. So now I can't close it. And now he won't answer the phone. All this sort of stuff. Is there, yeah. is there a world where this platform can make that collaboration easier? Yeah. I mean, that's the, you know, it's not just about, I mean, there's obviously like finding out where these overlaps exist in a right. super easy way, but then there's the collaboration of actually like co-selling together. Right. Right. And really, it's like the sp- the spaces that exist today. The I would say the incumbent. It's not a. There's not a lot of companies in this space, but the c- companies that have been here have really approached this entirely as like a partner enablement solution, right? That makes sense. And I don't believe that personally, right? Because I don't believe that this can be a siloed, you know, like partner enablement, but not sales type scenario, and and also not. It can't just be sales and not the partner side, right? So I feel like there's this there's this road, conjoining road where both sides are going to come together here um, because the opportunity is massive, yeah. right? But the way the way that it's been done, you have you know there, you've been around enough to know, right? There's you know there's usually some friction between the partner side and the sales side, right? Yeah, I was just going to say that is, is so I the sale the sales side is saying. Well. Yeah, the sales side is saying, "What the hell do you do?" Yeah, yep, and exactly. the par- and the partner side is saying, "You don't value me enough." Yeah. So, like, I don't want to do anything. <laughs> like, and they end up operating in silos, from what I've seen. Yeah, and so Even when they try not to, it it kind of just gravitates back to that. Right, and so the sp- the spaces exist today. The company sort of incumbent solution is really just trying to really just sort of optimize the the partner silo, right? So it's like a partner manager in a corner that's, you know, that's now got, trying to drive this sort of secret garden of, of leads, right, through partners. Yeah. And it actually has to be co-selling, right? It has to be salespeople selling together, or salespeople that can see where their target accounts overlap. Um, obviously, you and I both know Scott, Lee, Scott Lee's and, you know, and others, right? Scott's, 
been a huge proponent of late of like the full stack salesperson, right? Like not, you can't just have your SDRs the only people doing prospecting. Agreed. And so I feel like something like this helps facilitate that, right? Because I don't think you do want your AEs, you know, blasting a thousand emails a day, a thousand. And they just won't do it. It's an uphill battle pushing them. But when you can say, hey, here's, here's 50 accounts that over where we have overlapping relationships and I'm with you're with air call and I'm with talk desk. I don't know if, if that, you know, I could talk see desk. my top A's wanting to invest time in yeah. that. Yeah. It's a, it's like a, it's a gift, right? Yes. And it's yes. how do I like to me? That's how do you, how should sales orgs do it moving forward? And this is how, right. And so, well, Hey man, how, how can people get involved? Uh, you know, how, you just launched, right? So it's it's early. Yeah. What's the you know what's the current standing, and and how do people learn more and 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 get on the platform? Yeah. So yeah, we've raised a two million dollars seed round um, from Saster and Pivot North. Um, we have Jason's about, doubling down his investment on on you, huh? Or tripling yes. down? Or he felt he felt enough guilt to <laughs> to participate <laughs> if he didn't do it, you know? So. <laughs> Uh, either way, it worked out. Um, and so we have about like, you know, almost 15 paid customers. Um, you know, we're, we're not giving it away. And so that's sort of been, a, is, the, never... is is it one of those things where like Tinder, like the less people it's on it, the less value there is for people or, sure. or is there yeah, value there's, for there's, the immediate? Yeah, there's definitely a network effect, right? So if you have zero partners, there's generally zero value, right? You have to have at least one partner. If you have one partner, right, there's pro- in my opinion, there's enough value to pay for it, right? So Got if it. you even have just a single partner on, and most people start with one partner, right? And do you and have so, to convince your partner to do it too in order for it, that to work? Yeah, you would, you would have to, you would need one partner that wants to co-sell with you essentially, right? Got it. And, and so, so they will pay you as well, right? So both companies- They are do now. Um, and so- you know, we're, we don't have everything nailed as far as the long-term model, but like right. so far, you know, our approach has been, Hey, this is, even if it's one partner, you should, you know, there's a lot of value in it and it's, there's a lot of low hanging fruit and that's, you should pay for that. Um, and so, and there's, there is a natural viral loop in it, right. And that you have, you know, if air call creates a sort of a hub, so we call them hubs or private networks or whatever you want to call it. And air, air, uh, air call invites three partners in. Well, those three partners are now, that's three new leads, hypothetically, for us, right? Right. Um, and so you can add partners. It doesn't cost them anything. Right? And are but you if, facilitating that process? So if I'm air call and I'm like, all right, I want to get on this and we have 50 partners and I want to get all of them on it. Can I just tell you, hey, can you try to get our partners on or do we have to go figure that yeah, out? Yeah, it's usually sort of a combination. So, so sometimes you have partners that are like, you know, where you, you can just be like, Hey, go, go there. And they go there, that type of thing. Or sometimes we get involved and help, you know, right. sort of educate them, that kind of thing. So, and that'll right. be, we're going to build like sort of partner sort of recommendation piece into it. Right. So people will know who's potentially available to partner. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, we view it as, you know, this is going to be in five years, everyone will be doing this on some level. And those, those that don't do it will be at a fundamental strategic disadvantage in the market because you're selling, you're not selling one-on-one anymore. You're selling one-on-three, one-on-four, one-on-five. Um, 
you guys are going to have an enormous amount of data. You're going to get, I feel like you're going to have a lot of good data. I imagine you're tracking that type of stuff, like successful connections and and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like introductions made, introductions, um, introductions accepted, all that kind of stuff. Are you and then I think you asked about what you're plugging what, into the CRM so you can track revenue success. All we are, although we, we do allow you to not, if you're like, we don't, don't want to connect it. with yeah. CRM, you can upload like a CSV or whatever, right? right where you're not, where you, it's a more controlled data set. Right, um, right. But yeah, I think the bigger vision is, you know, I mean, there's a lot to right now. It's, there's so much to do that like, you know, we're not, there's we're a thinking lot of, about the next six months right now. There's a lot of paths. One of the things we talk about a lot is like sort of do- democratizing sort of sales inte- intelligence and knowledge, right? So one of, that's one of the things we talk about, which is like, hey, like, you know, you also, you have sort of the partner play and then you also have sort of super, like one rep can be a super hub, right? Some, just one super well-connected rep. And so, you know, and there's obviously there's, there's what's the value exchange and all that kind of stuff. Right. That's important. But like, yeah. you know, I can get, you know, like I know like 500 zeros, right. Like that's valuable. Right. And like most salespeople only have value to their current employer. Right. So like, you know, I work at Aircall, I work at talk desk, I work at Salesforce. Right. And so like we, we do, we have talked a lot about like, you know, what if we can sort of help match up the companies that, that want the customers that I can introduce them to. Right. Um, which, you know, again, that's a bigger, that's a bigger picture thing. It's certainly not what we're focused on in the short term. But yeah. Like, so you're saying it could almost evolve to like salespeople kind of own their own profile and can, yeah, can that's sort of bring it with them where they go. Kind of. Right. Yeah. Which is like, I can be a salesperson and I can just, I don't even need to have a full-time job. Right. Right. I can just be somebody that's facilitating, you know, oh, that's introductions to people. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like, Hey, if I know the CEO for price or the CMO for price waterhouse or, you know, the CIO for GE, um, like the world would be a better place. If, if more, some people were getting introduced through me again, obviously assuming yeah, that I wanted to introduce like a, them like a corporate matchmaker almost. Yeah. And so that's one of the things we've talked about. That's, that's a broader picture. Um, but that is something that we've talked about. Um, so I, I don't know how easy or hard that would be to build. I would imagine yeah, I mean, like, that, that would be like, imagine that someday that the platform is just almost doing that for you. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's, there's an element of like, this is a, this is a natural resource that you don't want to burn through. Right. And that's one of the reasons why we really cap the number of introductions that customers can ask for, because we don't want them. There's no scorch. There's no scorched earth play there. Yeah. Like like if sales loft limited, how many customers they would have (laughs) be working a lot better probably. Right. Yeah. So we have that conversation with people. They're like, well, how do I like, you know, I want to upload like everything into CSV and then I want to blast out. We're like, no, that's not what we're doing here. And if that's, you know, if you can't get your arms around that, we understand, you know, you want to be a strategic tool, not a, not a we mass do. market tool. Yeah. Yeah. Because every, you know, it's like almost in the same way that, you know, outreach and sales off were kind of revolutionary when they launched. Right. 
That's what I mean. It's, like, it's it's so different. Like they took, you know, sort of the Aaron Ross model and they just made it easier to do, but now it's yeah. almost too easy that too many people are doing it. <laughs> yes. Everybody's gotten, huh? This email is like almost the same as like 10 others I've gotten. Right? And you know, when you get it, like I'm going to get the voicemail tomorrow. Like, why is everybody get... cold calling me at three thirty eight PM? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, right. When you're does in somebody know that that's a good time to call me. Yeah. Um, and I just don't believe, you know, like the, all the people walking around that beat their chest on LinkedIn about how their teams made 20,000 cold calls today, right? I think they're full of shit, right? They're full of <laughs> shit and, and the cold calls are not they're as They're full effective. of shit and, it, and nobody picked up the goddamn phone. Like, just, I'm, I'm, I'm done with it, you know? Shut the fuck up. Like, you know, if that's the best we can do, then like, and I guess that's, that's what I feel around Cosell. That's why it's so... That's why I'm so passionate about it. I'm just done with the other way. I love it, man, because it's, it, it really is like, it's just, I feel like that, that change that we need because there just hasn't been anything that's really changed in the world of prospecting no. since sales loft and outreach, right? Since, since sales lo- I mean, so revenue, basically like- it's the phone in the last 150 years, there was the phone. <laughs> And yeah. then email slash outreach sales loft. That's it. <laughs> and, and LinkedIn. I, but but yeah, the messages LinkedIn. on LinkedIn, I think, are, are probably the least effective out of it. I mean, I mean, obviously, I love LinkedIn. You know, I'm always going to be a LinkedIn um, Kool-Aid drinker to some some degree. LinkedIn could have done this, right? They could oh, have done this. There's a lot of things LinkedIn could have done, yeah. Solved, and they didn't. They, you know, they, 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 they you know, they watched the pitch go buy on this one um and did you now, pitch this to them yes yeah i did i won't get into that but like <laughs> yes no but and, good for you for for making it happen on your own though yeah i mean the, really the for the first iteration of it of this idea which has been this has been like an eight-year process but it was just hard to figure out how to do this without needing to touch linkedin at some point like the right. linkedin api and obviously we've figured out how to do this and my co-founder um Pete Ryan, who's my co-founder, when he pitched it to me, he was like, I was like, jeez, you know, you kidding me, man? I've been thinking, I've been talking about this for eight years, literally eight years. Oh, what? He came back around and pitched you your own idea? No. Well, I had, he had founded this company years ago, this like sales recruiting platform called GoGoHire. Okay. And it didn't get there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and I'd been pitching for him. I'm like, you should just make, create this sort of like a bravado sort of model, right? Like this network for salespeople, right. almost kind of a revenue collective-ish concept. And so, you know, and he didn't do that. <laughs> and then years later, he came back around. I was like, hey, I'm working on this thing. And he told me, I was like, yeah, that's it. That's why, that's that's how you do this. And you don't need LinkedIn anywhere. Yeah. You don't need it. To, LinkedIn's cut out of the deal on this. Um, and so that's... And then I was like, yeah, if I don't try it. If I don't do this, I'm going to regret it. And so are you technically still positioned in a place where LinkedIn could want to purchase it someday? I don't know. Like, I don't know where LinkedIn, you know, LinkedIn is obviously Microsoft. I don't know what. It's hard know. to know what they're even up to these days. Like, Let me put it this way. Salesforce offered LinkedIn, what, $30 billion, right? To buy them or Salesforce, sorry. Salesforce offered LinkedIn $30 billion that they really didn't have at that point. I know for a fact that this concept is pretty important to Salesforce. (laughs) Like, you know, Salesforce 
has been trying to figure, you know, figure out how do we either back into or create some sort of graph or yeah. network effects and all that kind of stuff. It's been really, I think, I think probably behind closed doors, the thing that has burned in Benioff more than any other concept. Why the and heck so, didn't he, hasn't he done it? Like they have what you need to do it. Right. I mean, the data is, is in the Salesforce. Yeah. I mean, Salesforce doesn't launch new verticals really. Right. I mean, Salesforce stuff, right. By the way, I said sales loft three times, even though like Kyle, they're not not Salesforce yet, (laughs) but Salesforce, right. They don't typically it's, if you've ever been in a huge tech company, like when I was at Adobe, you very quickly learned that the, the ability to pivot is like, no, they don't pivot. Right. They, they acquire, they may launch a product like chatter or something else. Right. But like, you know, they try think, to solve. I think the, you were the one who they, said like they acquire things and it's like, what happens to them after? Well, they, I've yeah, seen it they, so many times, like too many times maybe. Right. Is <laughs> yeah. that like, and so, yeah, I think for like, you know, yeah, they, they haven't done this, I think is the point. Um, so like, yeah, I think if we can, ex- certainly this should be an interesting concept to a few people. I mean, obviously we're trying to build something, for the long haul, you know, 20, yeah. 30 years and, you know, but like, yeah, it's, if we execute, it's going to be interesting to people, you know, whether I that's Salesforce or LinkedIn or Oracle or whatever. Right. Cause I you know, it. if we got acquired by Oracle, I always wanted to live in Austin. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. That's just a joke. I have a lot of friends in Austin, by the way. So I thought about moving there. I, I did, but I, did. Uh, I don't think I could handle the heat. You can't you can't move to Austin to, at least until I've come out to our to our Jersey Shore party, right? I'll be there. I'm moving. I'm moving next week, man. I'm I'm out of this city. I'll have yeah. a an actual bedroom rather than a living room, kitchen room, dining room, bedroom. What you're what you're seeing yeah. right here? But, I'm excited because I've I need uh, you know getting out to Jersey Shore and and living the Jersey Shore experience for me, even if it's on a vacation, is is definitely a bucket list item. You know, it's it's. There, everyone now thinks that the whole Jersey Shore is like what you see on on TV. It's actually very like as you go down the shore, oh, you sure, go through yeah. these very different cultural like 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 things. The the spot I'm in is right above Asbury Park and Seaside, and that's where yeah. it's like very much like the TV show. But I'd imagine it's probably nothing like Jersey Shore, just like most of New Jersey is probably nothing like Sopranos, right, or something like exactly that. Exactly right? right. Yeah, yeah. It's I actually like just Jersey, a beautiful actually. beach, spent- a little boardwalk. Yeah, I spent the that first job recruiting. You know, the company was based in New York, so we'd come back to New York. Oh, okay. And one of the co-founders had like apartments and lofts all over New York and New Jersey. Yeah. So we would stay in Hoboken. Hoboken and we loved nice. Hoboken. Jersey, I mean, we were like, man, and people in New York love to hate on Jersey, but it's we liked honestly. Only- this is back in two thousand, two thousand one. We liked Hoboken more than. New York. Yeah, Hobo- oh, Hoboken's awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's very similar. To, it's like city like, yeah. but uh, of course, yeah, everybody you know, knows the New Jersey Turnpike, which smells awful. So they just think that that's all of New Jersey. But it's most people don't city. know that New Jersey is like fifteen minutes on the path or something, right? Like yep. it's yeah, it's yeah. right there. It's closer to. I actually lived like, in Harrison, New Jersey, which is at the path station, and it was twenty minutes. You just yeah. ride the path train and, and you're right in. But um, um, hey, man, let's let's wrap this yeah. up. We've we've yeah. ran on for for a while. This was yeah. a lot of fun for everyone who's listening. Cosell.io. Go yeah. there. Tell your CEOs, your CFOs, your VPs of sales, everyone. Get get them involved. Get them on there. 
Uh, there's nothing. Yeah. And if anyone happen. wants to reach out, I'm just Brendan at Cosell. B-R-E-N-D-O-N at Cosell.io. You can look me up on LinkedIn. Um, but um, yeah, definitely. Is, this was fun. Likewise, uh, man. We'll, you and we'll, I, we'll have you and I share a lot of uh, a lot of beliefs. <laughs> we do, we do. And 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 next season we'll get into some tactical stuff. We'll have yeah. you back on. We'll dive into some cool stuff. But uh, hey, man, enjoy the yeah. rest of the year. Happy holidays. Stay healthy. Yeah. You know, do the social distance, the mask, all that stuff, and uh, be well. And the vaccine. And, and the vaccine, right? <laughs> are, 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 you got plans to get it yet? When when's no, it getting out? Not there? Yet. No. Not yet. I don't it's even not available know. yet to us, right? I do know some like nurses and doctors that have gotten it. Um, Good the last feedback. So, so they're still is... alive. <laughs> Have you seen all these yeah. memes of like people are like they're like just had the COVID vaccine vaccine and they're like doing all weird <laughs> shit. <laughs> There's so much stuff going I mean, on the internet. I, right? I want I I want this to be over because as much as I love working on my comments. Um, I would like to be like at least have the option to like maybe go into an office and not be like, hmm. I, well, I, I do miss. I'd the love office to go so interact much. with people, but I don't want to die. <laughs> Honestly, that's why I said I'm moving to the shore. Something I would have never done in my life: go live on a beach. But yeah. I'm like, look, I can run this business from my place, yeah. and it's close to my family, so I get to go see them. I'll be 30 minutes from my whole family, nieces, nephews, everyone. I'll have a car again, so I can like be a real human and like are you from new jersey originally yeah yeah what in what part of new jersey edison so central jersey yeah so that where i'm going is a little bit south of that um yeah. but but yeah i'm excited to go back because i haven't lived there since i was 18 i moved to rhode island for college stayed there for eight years then came to where did new you york. go to where'd you go to college johnson and wales in providence nice yeah so you know so this is a really like this is like me going back home i'm turning 35 i'm still single and I kind of like, I think I thought like, I'm not going home until I'm, until I'm married. Right. Then I'll probably buy a house yeah. in New Jersey. That's like always been the plan. But now I'm like with quarantine and everything here, like you can't date in New York right now. It's like, were well, you going to go on a mask date? Like, <laughs> so I'm like, at least for the next year, I just should go be closer to my friends and family. Cause like the dating scene is just yeah. dead, you know? So. There's a, there's an SNL like skit a few years ago. It was like a, you know, one of their sort of fake movie trailers. And it was like based on one of those stories about like the guy that's dating the sick girl, you know, <laughs> and it, and the, the, the setup was that she had Ebola. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're dating and, and, you know, and she's like, you know, she, they're both in a hospital, but he, he has some <laughs> lesser disease and he's like, what do you have? And she's like, Ebola. And he's like, Oh Jesus. Right. Like, and that's so what they're life like, is you know, like now. They're going on dates and they have like, you know, like full like hazmat gear on. And it's pretty funny. <laughs> I was talking to this girl the other day. She, she got all mad at this guy because she met a guy on the streets. You know, they have a nice conversation. And he goes, do you mind take your mask down so I could see what you look like? <laughs> and, yeah. and she's like enormously offended. But I'm like, I don't. It's kind of a valid question. Like <laughs> I yeah, I you know, we live. I love to live in the suburbs and I was getting gas the other day. And this woman who went to the same school, whose kids went to the same school as my son's last year. She's like, Hey, Brendan, you know, she had a mask on, she had sunglasses on and she's like, how are you doing? Like, how are your kids doing? She's talking to her kids. And I was like, yeah, no, yeah, definitely. And then she went, drove away and I was like, I don't know who that is. Who, who the heck was that? And I went back to my wife and I'm like, yeah, this woman, she's got, you know, she has two kids that are our son's age. And we were trying to figure out, you know, like, cause I, I didn't know she had a mask on. Sunglasses it's so on. weird. 
And you can't and tell like, if people are smiling or, or she knew not. who I was though. So it's, it always makes you feel a little better when somebody knows who you are and you don't know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than the other way around. That's uh, enough. That's enough to get you through a day right right there. So, um, but yeah, like that'll be, I, I would imagine that'll be a dating scene. People will be like, you know, by the way, I, I've already gotten the vaccine. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what people were talking about. Like, is yeah. there going to be like an app that's going to show like the proof that you're, you know, like when you sign up for Tinder, you have to you're going to show your vaccinations and stuff. Although I'll be honest, there there are other diseases that that probably be more useful for on Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. All right, this is how you but know we've, probably, we've come to the probably end of the show. more risk. Maybe yeah. even right. Like if you're there on you Tinder, Look you're at, pr- you. Yeah. When when Cosell gets acquired, we're going to start a, a Tinder that that puts all of your medical records for the public to see. Oh, yeah. I got. Trust me. Yeah, I got a lot, a lot of by disease. Lot of ideas That's actually not a bad idea. And by the way, all, I'm going to leave it here. There was one question you asked um, that I don't think we got to, which is like, how do you, you know, advice on like how to handicap startups and stuff like that? Right. Yes. Like, you know, find the you should be constantly, you know, like you should be thinking of your own ideas, right? Things that are interesting to you, whether those are things that you do or found at some point, but like, that'll help what's interesting to you. Like, and you can't always work for a company that's personally interesting, right? Or aligns with something. And this was just so everyone's, uh, for everyone who's listening, the question that he's referring to is, is, is what's advice for how to pick the right startup to work for? Yeah. Pick something that you believe in, right? That you're passionate about. And that may limit, the type, the number of companies that you could work for or might work for, but that's pretty good. Like have an opinion about, you know, like what is interesting to you? What are problems that you think are worth solving? Um, like what about when I like got in- trade-offs, right? Like the kinds of questions I get from people will be like, Hey, I'm looking at these two different jobs. One of them is like this really good product, but like maybe the team's not as good. The other one, like I really like the team products, not as good. Like, do you have general rules of thumb with those types of things or it's case by case? I would say, yeah, I mean, who the VP of sales is, is a big variable, right? Yeah. Because that, is it somebody that you trust um, or you feel like you can trust? Is it somebody that you feel like's going to be around, right? Right. So like there's scenarios where it's like, oh, like, you know, I like this, I like this guy or this woman, but I'm not sure, you know, like, I'm not sure they're going to be around in like six or nine months, right? Right. And those are like, those are variables that can change everything for any salesperson. So I would say, you know, like that was at TalkDesk, the team I built, a big part of the, you know, draws, the the biggest draws, they wanted to work for me because I had, you know, I'd sort of created that perception, (laughs) true or not, or fair or not, that I was somebody, a great person to work under. But that feels really good, right? Walking into a role like that. You know, having already, you already proven yourself before you even start. Yeah. And that was, that was a big deal, right? It was like, they they viewed it as, I want to work for Brendan. Brendan can help. That really, that really saves you a lot of time in the first 90 days because yes. Like going in, normally, like it's first you got to figure out who you're going to keep on the team, right? And and who's going to be in what role, yeah. and then you I have would to earn rather respect. You already had that. I, if I were a founder, and I am now, but like, and I was hiring a VP of sales, I would rather hire somebody younger and less experienced if they had people ready to come with them that were good. That I, yeah. you know, like so there's the number of VPs of sales you and I have both met <laughs> that have been around and maybe look good on paper. 
no but one nobody, will follow for them. some reason, nobody wants to work for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I don't want that. You know, I wouldn't hire that person, right? Because now yeah. you're, they're competing for talent against everybody else that has seemingly no network, right? And so you want the VP yeah. of sales who's, who not only has people that will follow them, but they know exactly how many months it is until they're no longer legally restricted from hiring them from their last company, right? Like those Which are the is, people hey, you know really have one, people. One great benefit of California for those uh, oh, they can't pondering, do that, right? No, there's yeah, all those yeah. are I actually don't think it's very enforceable. Like, I, like, no. I think I could probably break that rule and get away with it. But like, but in California, it's overtly unenforceable. Right. right so it's, right, right. It is. It's yeah. not even considered. Right. Oh, so you've never so, had to deal with that. Yeah. Usually um, when I leave, you got about 12 months, but it, yeah, I just do it out of respect, honestly. But you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, you definitely don't want to be like, you know, the person. Yeah. And so like, yeah, if you want to be that VP of sales, you should, should be developing potential hires that are not just people that currently work for you. Right. They could be, yeah. you know, you, you have to be doing that all the time. And like, I've had to, you know, the people I hired at talk desk, only one of those people were people that work for me at echo sign. Right. Because they were all VPs now. <laughs> like, right. Right. So that, it was like, I couldn't hire Sam Bond again or any of these people. They're all running sales orgs elsewhere. No, I mean, I, so, I, I have my people that like, I always keep in touch with that. They know that I'm yeah. always trying to bring them to the next place. And that's an underrated, right that's an underrated thing. Like, I don't, and I, it I don't really think is. Lot, a, it really, really is. You, you know, need I'm, to be, whether you're consulting or not, or yeah. like you need to be constantly having like your next team sort of. Well, it, it significantly reduces your chances yeah. of failure by, by yes. being able to work with people that you've it, worked with it before. De-risks. It's a yeah. de-risking element, right? It's like, yeah. Like obviously the odds are stacked against any one startup always, but like if you, you got to chip away first, at that a little bit, if your first five salespeople are all like highly probable to have some level of success, that significantly de-risks the whole. Scenario, yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and you know that you can just work with them, right? Like you you understand yeah. them as a human because we all know like interviews say nothing, right? The person who shows up on Monday is always a different person than was in the interview. Almost yeah. always. Right. And, and so like after you've worked with them and you know what they're like at their worst moments, it makes a big difference. So like, and they also like when you move from like that sort of founding team to like, let's sort of create a model, like a, you know, a sort of model of sort of characteristics and, you know, it becomes less about a resume and more about a, you know, a profile. Agreed. Is the those people that you brought in help? You know, they're they're so invaluable to help bring those. When you're when you're, yeah, I think you know what I'm talking about, right? You're hiring you. people because you can't. You know, not you're not not everyone has a resume. You know, the resumes lie all the time, right? So like the resumes don't mean know, anything. You're gonna, in sales. Yeah, you're going to start hiring people that are like, you know, they have the right mindset characteristics. It's more about the raw materials than it is about the resume, sort of beyond that, in my opinion. Yeah. And they really, the, bringing those people along and, and you don't have to be sort of the mentor every time is huge to have, you know, sort of out of your first 10 hires, people that can help, you know, they help sort of co-lead, you know? Yeah, it, so. it, it makes such, because you can trust them, you know, to take care of things when you're not in the room and stuff like you just yeah. already have so much established, you know, mutual agreements and, and concepts and theories and trainings and stuff. Like, you know, I, I got a guy that I desperately want to bring on to, you know, one of the companies I'm consulting with now 
just because I know it'll it'll advance us six months. You know, just by getting that one. That's the harder close, though, don't you think? (laughs) It is. It is. Yes. If you were coming to work directly for me, it'd be easier. Yes. Yeah. Now it's like, hey, come work for this company. Hey, so you're gonna. Yeah, well, I'll be around sometime. Yeah, he's right? like, are you going to sign like a 12-month agreement with them? So I know that you're there. <laughs> and so if I do that, then 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 uh, I, I might yeah. be able to get him. Yeah. So. Well, I might go full-time at some point. Are you going to go full-time? No. <laughs> no. And by the way, there's no chance unless I absolutely have to. People have asked me that, like, are you going to go back full-time? And originally I thought yeah. I'll probably fall in love with one of these clients and do it. But now I've fallen in love yeah. with not having a boss, yeah. you know. Yeah, that was really the same for me, right? Was I kind of went into it being like, well, maybe I'll do this for like six months or a year. Yeah, yeah. But I don't really, you know, but then somebody. you're like, you know, you're all, you're constantly like, you look at these startups, you're constantly risk assessing, right? And then it becomes a thing where you're like, you're, you're searching for the reason not to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, I actually oh, feel like, like I'm more equipped to help startups with the things that I'm great at, which is the very early stage, I actually feel more equipped to help them in a consulting capacity than full-time. I actually think it's better for them. They don't have to worry about when they're going to fire me because it's inevitable anyway, right? Like they just, you don't have to deal with that. You can get all of the benefits without a lot of the risk, you know? And you get, and you as well as for them and for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it it goes both ways. Like I have never been happier, honestly, in my entire adult life than I think I've been in the last few months because I, I don't have that, that paranoia of when's that really bad day going to come. It just comes, man. It does. Like you've, you've been, you've been, I don't want to say lucky because it's not luck. It's hard work, but you also yeah. landed in some spots like where things worked out. And it's not like that for most VP roles. No, it's, like, it's, it's usually a, not a happy ending. And that does not mean you're a bad VP. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a luck component, right? Yeah. And like, and like, because well, a lot of it's out of your control. You're dealing, you're just one piece is. of the puzzle. And the luck component, it's when you meet people that don't think it's a luck, there's a luck component to it. You're like, yeah, this, this guy never really did it for then, right? You know, because, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like, yeah, it's like you execute. There, I know there's some no question about it, but what was, I know luck? some was the incredible timing, the placement, right? I know some incredible VPs of sales that have never really had that sort of, yeah, that, that signature win that I think are better than I am, first off. Um, and, you know, I would hire if I was a CEO, I'd be like, I'd go hire that guy. Um, by the way, I'm getting low on my, <laughs> my battery. No, it's here, good. But... We should wrap it up anyway. Yeah, We're rambling fun. on, but it's, it was a good episode. Lots of good nuggets in here and, uh, yeah, let's stay in touch, man. All right, man. Everybody go check it out. Get your companies on there. Uh, I'm going to be pushing people yep. to do it soon. All right. Sounds good. Right, Thank man. you. Take All care. Right. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Colin Cadmus podcast. Please don't forget this episode was brought to you by Lessonly. Check out Lessonly.com. That's L-E-S-S-O-N-L-Y.com. This episode was also brought to you by Spiff. Check out Spiff.com forward slash Colin. Please don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you so much for listening and watching, and I'll see you next time. Ooh.